Oh, man. Getting philosophical. Uh, it's something I guess we all do. Or some of us did. Everybody. Everybody's getting philosophical, at least on this Overnight Scape Central. Now, that's better. That's a better way of getting us and launching us into yet another awesome Overnight Scape Central. And this time around, Eddie Murray is here with uh, some... I'm sure interesting stuff. And we've got Dave in Kentucky. And we've got Frank, Edward, Nora, and who knows? Something else may pop up before we part company this Monday evening. Yeah, we're back to Monday. With any luck, this will be done on Monday. But who can say? Because the life, it, it, it brings us things that require a certain philosophical outlook, I would suppose. When things don't happen the way we intend. Uh, yeah, you can get it as I do, but just totally frustrated, say the wrong things, stamp your foot, throw a temper tantrum, or you can get philosophical. Yeah. And uh, this is PQ River. Yep, that's how uh, some know me. Lately, I've been calling myself Brett because that's my name. Uh, a real name, a, a real person behind the persona is here, and I call myself the appreciator. Yet another amazing but sporadical entry in the overnightscape underground uh, world. And so much is going on. Before I uh, continue, I mentioned it on uh, the appreciator, but Shambles Constant has returned with a really cool doctor who program where he's starting all the way back in the era that that that's definitely appreciator territory the william hartnell era of doctor who it, it could be my favorite of all time for whatever reason i think it was because i only saw some tom bakers on public tv uh growing up uh my first Real serious, okay, I'm going to sit and watch Doctor Who. Uh, I was trading VHS tapes in the mid-80s, and a fellow by the name of Sam Gordon was trading me for the old pre-code movies and silent movies that I had. Uh, that Wherever he was watching them, they were on TV there, the early William Hartnell Doctor Whos, and... He was sending those to me, and that's how I really fell for the concept and the show, those creaky early 60s black and white shows. And maybe that's why I have such a sentimental attachment to them, but they're great. They really are. And I am so glad that Shambles is enjoying them and effervescing about them, and perhaps you could get into them as well by listening to Shambles. And there's a new show that I have neglected to mention up to now. And in fact, he's here this very week back again. Uh, and he's doing a show called The Uber Mensch. And he is talking about World War II from his usual. Uh, he's got a much more focused and clear contrarian attitude than I do. But I do identify with the contrarian. And uh, looking at things just a little different. No, he's not uh, jackbooting us by any means. But dear Ubermensch, 
uh, four episodes already in the series, and he does continue the sermons, but it sounds to me like uh, he's getting more into this other new show. Um, so, lot going on. Of course, Frank uh, is leaving if he has not left for Italy, so we will have the Italian trip episodes, or episode, depending on how he does it, uh, coming to us over the next couple of weeks. And Flea, Devil, Solitaire rules have been codified and making a post with the complete rules has happened. So uh, you can go to onsug.com if you find this program elsewhere and you can read and possibly play Flea, Devil, Solitaire. All you need is a deck of cards. You don't even need a tabletop. It really is a remarkable game. But uh, that aside, let's hear what Eddie Murray has to say about getting philosophical and get this overnight scape central a rolling. Uh, yeah. Thank you. PQ. Philosophy. Philosophy has been around for an age and a half. And there are many philosophers. Seneca is one of them. And there are many more. In fact, I think there are what they call the great three when you're talking about Greek philosophy. But in fact, there was also Eastern philosophy. So Eastern philosophy and uh, Western philosophy of course, Eastern philosophy is uh, a lot a lot older. Um, so I don't know. I'm gonna type in because I know I know there's Kierkegaard and there's all these guys. Then there's the French philosophers. Okay, I'm no expert, but I know a little bit. I, let's say I know my way around, probably, rather than been any sort of academic on it or something, but I think there is the big three. Isn't that what they call them? The big three? I think it's I think it's philosophers. <clears throat> so the big three philosophers would be Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And uh, <clears throat> there's lots to learn about them. And of course I can just click in to anything and read stuff, of course, philosophy is all about reading. You know, Socrates, here's one. Socrates was a big city philosopher in ancient Athens, accused of convicted, convicted or corrupting the youth. His only real crime was embarrassing and irritating a number of important people. His punishment was death. Well, that's what they said. That's what they say here, anyway. <clears throat> uh, Plato says he was an aristocratic man with plenty of money and a superb physique. Plato at one time won two prizes as a championship wrestler. Actually, the man's real and little-known name was Aristocles. Aristocles. Plato was just a nickname given to him by his friends, whose original connotation made reference to his broad shoulders. There was Aristotle, 
a long walk to the golden mean, Aristotle was Plato's, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> take a drink. Aristotle was Plato's best student. Mm. He went on to become the very well-paid tutor, probably the highest-paid philosopher in history of Alexander the Great. Aristotle started his own philosophical school when he was 50 years old, although he lived only 10 more years. He produced nearly a thousand books and pamphlets, only a few of which have survived. This great thinker was called peripatetic philosopher. Parapatio means to walk around because he liked to lecture to his students while talking a walk. While taking a walk, sorry. I suppose while talking while he's walking too. Another group of philosophers were called Stoics because they preferred sitting around on porches, stoa, when they shot the breeze. A key theme in Aristotle's thought is that happiness is the goal of life. Aristotle was a good deal less otherworldly other than Plato. He voluntarily went into exile from Athens when conditions became a bit politically dangerous for him. In other words, lest Athens sin twice against philosophy. The founder of logical theory, Aristotle, believed that the greatest human endeavor is the use of reason in theoretical activity. One of his best-known ideas was his conception of the golden mean. In other words, to avoid extremes. Bloody hell, I should learn a lesson from him. The Council of Moderation in All Things. Absolutely. Agree with it, but hard to do for some people, especially for me for some reason. But anyway, there we go. That's that's the big three. And um, so I, I shall ask now ChatGPT to fill me in a little bit more what to say because I'm kind of shooting from the hip here a bit. Um, so let's see. What shall we ask, ChatGPT? Uh, say, um, 20 um, most popular philosophers. I'm not spelling it wrong. Philos. Philosophers. I've had some wine. 20 most popular. I forgot the word popular. Popular philosophers with... One sentence summary. How's that? I probably <clears throat> I didn't write. I didn't. I didn't uh, type that correctly. Oh, I, I still got what I said. Okay, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Okay, the next Immanuel Kant, known for his moral philosophy and his metaphysical ideas, including the concept of the categorical imperative. Okay, categorical and imperative, or categorical, categorizing things, imperative, how important they are, right? Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, an influential critic of traditional values and morality, known for his ideas on the will to power and the ubermensch. Um, yes, of course, our friend um, there in Kentucky doing his uh, ubermensch and his uber riding around. Very interesting, because I did try and read that book, or at least listen to it, um, which was, uh, 
what was it again? Uh, oh, I forget it. Yeah, it was the Uber mentioned it. It's just, yeah, it'll come back to me later. Anyway, John Locke here as well. I'll just say continue here. Dave in Kentucky, isn't it? Is it Dave? Sorry, I'm forgetting your name. Uh, continue. I have continue down here. Okay, so there's John Locke. <clears throat> An advocate. Thus spoke Zarathustra. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, I got pretty in-depth in that. And actually, it was interesting what he was saying on his last thing. He was talking about the... Uh, on his last sermon about unicorns being uh, probably... They were probably actually referencing rhinoceroses, actually. And yeah, I, I did hear that before. So good good shout, good call, good call out there. John, John Locke, an advocate of empiricism, known for his ideas on natural rights, social contract theory, um, and then misses the rest. But then there's Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a major fi figure. I did mention the, the French ones earlier on, and here's one of those. A major figure in political philosophy, known for his ideas on social contract theory and the nature of civilization. Yeah, of course, um, of course, morality and ethics are, are two big things in philosophies that you can sort of delve really deep into. And there's examples, which we might, if there's time, we might do some of those. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, I have not really heard of him, but he's known for his political philosophy, particularly his concept of the state of nature and the necessity of a strong central authority. Okay. Um, yeah, there was another thing I was thinking of. There's, there's some new, that new, new philosopher guy um, who I've seen quite a lot of. You know, he kind of talks a little bit like, like this when he's talking. I think he's kind of East, Eastern Europe or something like that. And he's always grabbing his nose. You know that guy? Uh, Zaraski, what's his name? Uh, I'll get that for you later as well. Skipping my mind. Okay. So David Hume as well. A Scottish philosopher known for his empiricist approach, skepticism, and his influential ideas on causation. So there's always, yeah, there's causation. And then, yeah, so if you do something that it can affect something else, you know, if it's, if it's if it's contingent upon something else, it's contingent upon something else, contingent upon something else. There's always something affecting something else. You know, one thing can affect another thing. And what is the source of that thing? And then are you going to be responsible for your actions? If you're going to say something, then you got to take, you know, you got to be expect the consequences of whatever you do and all that kind of thing. Um, and, of course, I think uh, Brett PQ also mentioned Marcus Aurelius which we can have a look into a little bit later as well. Karl Marx, here at number 10, developed the theory of Marxism, which emphasizes the class struggle and the critique of capitalism. René Descartes, who I used to think was my favorite, actually, because I just loved, whenever I read his stuff, I was like, yeah, he really got it. Anyway, he was renowned, it says here, for his emphasis on methodo methodological... Met Methodo methodological doubt and his dualist perspective on the mind and body. Yeah, I must read more of his stuff because I know I used to really resonate with it. René Descartes. 
Also, John Stuart Mill, a, utilit a utilitarian philosopher who advocated for individual liberty, women's rights, and the importance of happiness and well-being. That's it. John Stuart Mill, I, I don't really know his stuff, but he sounds very much like um, that other guy. Uh, he, was, he was also French. Again, it's given my mind. I'm very good at forgetting lately. Well, here we go. Here's the next one. Martin Heidegger. Heidegger. A major figure in his existentialist philosophy. Yes, known for his exploration of uh, ex existentialism, I guess, here. It's, it's, it's kind of cutting out here. Um, let's see what else we got. Um, continue. Uh, yeah, I made uh, for his explanation of the nature of existence and the being in the world concept. Jean-Paul Sartre, that's who I was thinking of. <clears throat> when I, John Stuart Mill sounded a bit like Jean-Paul Sartre um, because, well, let's see what it says. He's an existentialist philosopher who emphasized human freedom and the responsibility of individuals in creating their own values. Okay. I thought he had something to do with women's freedom as well or something. But there we go. He was saying human freedom. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, the next one is Friedrich Hayek, at number 15, known for his advocacy of classical liberalism and his ideas on the importance of individual freedom and limited government intervention. And at 16, we have Simone de Beauvoir, a feminist philosopher and writer who explored topics such as gender, existentialism and the concept of the other. Of course, existentialism is very close contender to nihilism, which would have been Nietzsche's forte, I guess. Uh, Albert Camus is a prominent existentialist philosopher known for his exploration of the absurdity of human existence. So absurd, absurdance or absurd yeah, existence and the search for meaning. So you can find meaning in absurdity and all this kind of stuff. So Albert Camus, very interesting guy, Albert Camus. We might uh, look into his stuff later. Anyway, Ludwig Wittgenstein, another dude, uh, is a philosopher of language and logic who contributed to the understanding of language games and the limits of representation. Of course, language, probably very important. And, you know, the likes of, Noam Chomsky, who's not a philosopher, but uh, sort of a linguist, or what, did he, what was the word for it? Anyway, he was very much, language can be very important, you know, how we even begun to spoke and what sounds we use for words and different languages and how words interact with things, how words and even shapes of words and the first consonants and sounds of things said they can even affect our whole reality without us even realizing it it's uh, fascinating stuff uh my michael michael foucault or michelle i know you say michelle foucault for foucault i think most people know him as a his works focused on uh power and let's see if this continues here he's number 19 so uh, he focused on power, knowledge, and the relationship between individuals and societal institutions. And then Judith Butler, a prominent feminist philosopher who explored gender, 
identity and the performative nature of social roles. Please note that this is not an exhaustive uh, list and there are many other influential philosophers throughout history. Each philosopher has their own unique contributions and ideas that have shaped various fields of study and continue to influence philosophical thought today. Um, this is going well, so how about we continue with this same theme? You know, it's, it's short, it's brief, you're getting a snippet. So we'll continue on for 20 more. Arthur Schopenhauer, known for his pessimistic philosophy that emphasizes the fundamental nature of suffering and the importance of overcoming desire. George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, so Hegel, everyone would just say Hegel, developed the concept of dialectical reasoning and the idea that history progresses through a series of conflicts and resolutions. Edmund Husserl considered the founder of phenomenology, emphasizing the study of conscious experience and the intentionality of consciousness. Martin Luther, a pivotal figure in the Protestant Reformation, known for advocating for religious reform and individual faith. And I'll just continue here as well. Uh, I said Edmund, I said Martin. Uh, Baruch Spinoza. So Spinoza is known for his rationalist philosophy, particularly his pantheistic view of God and his ethics based on the pursuit of reason. And we have William James, an American philosopher and psychologist, known for his pragmatic approach and his works on the study of consciousness and religious experience. Then Anne Rand, who developed the philosophy of objectivism, which promotes, um, which promotes rational self-interest, individualism, and laissez-faire capitalism. Laissez-faire, did I say that right? Then Albert Einstein is down as a philosopher, okay. Known primarily as a physicist, but also contributed to philosophy with his ideas on the nature of reality, determinism, and the philosophy of science. Fair enough. Uh, Hannah Arendt explored themes of politics, power, and totalitarianism, particularly, particularly in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And we have William Goodwin, um, who I never heard of, I don't think. Uh, he was an influential political philosopher, again, who advocated for anarchism and the abolition of government institutions altogether. Thomas Aquinas, a medieval philosopher known for his synthesis of Christian theology and Aristotelian philosophy, particularly particularly his five ways argument for the existence of God. Karl Popper, known for his philosophy of science, particularly his concept of falsifiability and his critique of induction. And then, of course, Confucius, an ancient Chinese philosopher whose teachings emphasize uh, harmonious relationships, moral conduct, 
and social order. Lao Zi, considered the founder of Taoism, his philosophy focuses on living in harmony with the Tao, the ineffable and natural way of the universe. Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher known for his teachings on personal virtue, resilience, and acceptance of external events. Marcus Aurelius, there he is, a Roman emperor and a Stoic philosopher. His work, Meditations, which I believe was kind of a diary that some suggest he may even have been embarrassed about people finding, but became very important, obviously. And um, so that was his work, Meditations. They reflect on ethics, self-discipline, and the transient nature of life. You know, Marcus Aurelius, very interesting guy. Simone Weil, a French philosopher, mystic, and social activist who explored themes of oppression. And obviously you can hear it's raining now. I'm in the car. Uh, where are we now? Who explored themes of oppression, justice, and the nature of work. John Dewey, an influential American philosopher uh, known for his pragmatism and his work on education, democracy, and the social aspects of knowledge. Noam Chomsky, there he is. I didn't think he'd be a philosopher, but there you go. He's, he's known for his contribution to linguistics, the word I couldn't think of earlier. Chomsky also delved into the political philosophy, advocating for libertarian socialism and critiquing systems of power. Um, I think he was threatened over... He changed his stance on, on 9-11, really went with the with the whole official version 9-11. That really put me off him. Uh, I was a big fan of his before he did that, but anyway. Max Weber. Well, I don't know. If you're protecting your family, you've got to do things sometimes. Anyway. Okay, Max Weber, a sociologist and philosopher. Weber explored the relationship between religion, economics, and social structures emphasizing the role of bureaucracy in modern society. Uh, Jacques Derrida, a key figure in postmodern philosophy, Derrida developed deconstruction, a method of critically analyzing texts and questioning binary oppositions. Yeah, Derrida is a big one. Derrida is another big one. Carl uh, Jaspers, well, known for his existentialist philosophy and explorations of human freedom, just. Jaspers emphasized the need for individuals to confront the limitations of their existence. Martha Nussbaum, a philosopher and ethicist, Nussbaum focused on the capabilities, approach, and defended the importance of human rights and social justice. Um, so I'll just put continue here. Uh, so Judith, Judith Jarvis Thompson known for her contributions to moral philosophy. Thompson's uh, famous, oh, that one's gone anyway. Oh, we'll just do a few more then, because um, I don't really know any of these ones, really. Okay, the, Derek Parfit, known for his work on personal identity and ethics. Parfit explored questions related to identity. Okay, and then we had postmodern modern modernists, and then Daniel Dennett, and then Shelley Kagan, and Right, there we go. So I think that's enough. Very interesting, the amount of different ones that are there. Uh, I suppose it might be a good idea to delve into some of the actual philosophy as well. But I suppose 
but there'd be a lot of people maybe doing that on the on here. So I think I will leave with that, and then we'll, we'll say, what can you do? And back to you, PQ, uh, Brett. Like some, what those people over there did, those big-headed people, those those intellectual types who are just tossing around. You know, it's like fine poetry. I also have a tendency to. It, it isn't quite dismissiveness. I just see it as something I'm not 100%. I mean, to be philosophical, I think of the old, well, you know, things didn't work out, but you have to look at it this way. Um, not an 800-page mass of words explaining other words and describing other concepts, uh, which now, as I slowly, I'm still getting into it, and it's not becoming clearer at first it's becoming more confusing i really almost seem to know less and less as i found out more the jargon the terminology the fact that you know to me a stoic is like my grandfather no matter how bad things got he got up and he kept going he wasn't sitting on any porch tossing ideas back he but again that's the thing there's a whole logic and structure and grammar and presentation to philosophy to me you know when i have an argument it's like hey you have uh, that it, it, it's this heated argument i guess would be the better way of putting it but to a philosopher just two people who have a different point of view being able to discuss something in such a beautiful civil way to me this is all an innovation and i have been looking at words and these concepts in such a simplistic almost um stilted uninformed and uneducated way i've sort of because certain people have referred to me as some sort of like oh you look at things like such i'm not an intellectual i'm not even fit to sit at the knees and listen to many intellectuals because they're saying one thing and I have this reactive mind and I am not seeing any depth here. I'm just, oh, somebody disagrees with me. I have to, this is an attack. It's not an attack. It's an exploration that one is being invited to, to go back and forth and say, well, I see it this way to because this and this and you're constructing an argument as opposed to having an argument it's the, the philosophy again the more i am looking at it and learning about it the more i really feel i will never a hundred percent understand the depth that this schools of thought I mean, I, I thought, you know, okay, there's me 50 philosophers, and that's a lot. And if you learn, there's hundreds of them. And then there are the ones that aren't so well known that if you're going to really study philosophy, I mean, Pessoa and the Book of Disquiet was sort of my introduction in this new up-to-date, uh, well, up-to-date for me, look at philosophy 
And I could read that book several times and still not get it all because of the way this man was able to look at things, not just from one viewpoint, but to actually set himself up and pose to look at things from so many different ways. And uh, the Book of Disquiet is this collection of fragments, these ideas that he had that he wrote down, his chest, oh, the, just the idea of it, much less exploring it and finding out more about it is something that that could be a whole lifetime study. I mean, there are people who just Plato and uh, like Aristotle that Eddie was mentioning. Him alone, I, he is such a historical figure in how we think. I mean, he was taught by Plato and then it, he was Alexander the Great's like advisor. And yes, they later on, I think, historically had some sort of disagreements uh, and maybe Aristotle felt a little bad for bringing that person into what became but it's hard to say because history itself is so we weren't there and all we have are certain elements of what happened we don't have the actual people to explain what they meant and looking at things from a contemporary viewpoint is so tricky, even with people who only who live now or only lived within our own lifetimes. Things change so much. And yeah, that's another element of philosophy. Uh, it's just so much. And I do thank Eddie for attempting to give us the idea of the scope and the concepts, because there are so many, and I don't think I really even understand the basics yet, even though I've been looking at it with some regularity for a year and a half or so. I'm just, I feel like a dunce when I am talking to people who really know their stuff. And uh, we've got the, uh, Marcus Aurelius. Let's, let, let's just... Uh, the meditations, which indeed are these little bits that tie together in different books. These, uh, these are from book four uh, that I am up to, and they're divided into numbered sections, sort of like, uh, well, the, the Bible, per se, which is yet another book of philosophy when you look at it, the New Testament, the Old Testament, and different it is the way we hone and use our brain. And me with my crazy spectrum thinking and undisciplined ways, uh, if I could impose some more structure on all of this nonsense, just scurrying around in my head, it would bring that clarity and focus that uh, we spoke about a few weeks ago and that I continue to speak about because... I am so scattered in this uh, spectrum asp well, no, autism. Yeah, let, let's just call a spade a spade. Uh, I am on the autism spectrum, and this in and of itself maybe makes for great podcasts and interesting talks that just digress and digress about things like comic books and 
uh, old TV shows and these B-level, almost forgotten celebrities and just jumping around with all willy-nilly. Would it be better if I presented it in a really focused... It's hard to say. That, That would be up to individual people as they go. All this nostalgia business. Anyways, let's read some... Marcus Aurelius here, um, number 22 from book four. No wandering, in every impulse, give what is right. In every thought, stick to what is certain. Hmm. Yeah, that kind of makes uh, almost all of my discourse kind of negated in a certain way. Uh, 23. Universe, your harmony is my harmony. Nothing in your good time is too early or too late for me. Nature, all that your seasons bring is fruit to me. All comes from you, exists in you, returns to you. The poet says, Dear city of Cecrops, will you not say, Dear city of Zeus? Which is more inclusive. He's not just talking, yeah. I look at things so limited and, yes, opening up to everything. I mean, nature. When do I think about nature? It, and I don't know. Let's, let's, let's uh, keep going here. Try out, try out, too, how the life of the good man goes for you. The man content with his dispensation from the whole, and satisfied in his own action and kind disposition. And at times, I mean, I guess we all like to look at ourselves as kind, and maybe in certain ways I am, but then when I examine things, I could be a lot kinder, uh, uh, gentler, more... I don't know. I I can get so dismissive about things that challenge me and challenge my own concepts. And instead of looking at that and learning about it, I will fight against it and get huffy and perhaps even sarcastic or obnoxious about it. I don't know. Uh, Let's have one more. Either an ordered universe or a stew of mixed ingredients, yet still coherent order. Otherwise, how could a sort of private order subsist within you if there is disorder in the whole? Especially given that all things, distinct as they are, nevertheless permeate and respond to each other. That's so true, but to actually implement it in the clutter of my mind, I look at it like if you just had, which on my computers I do, just all your files in these folders all all over the place and not organize into inner folders. No, there's just this giant folder of my mind and I can just jump and leap from one to the other and they're all there and they all coexist and somehow connect to one another, but there is no clear connection when I am giving out a discourse on it, perhaps. 
what have you. Uh, like I say, organization and focus seem to be where I feel I'm having problems being genuinely able to incorporate, understand, and move forward in learning this philosophy as it's presented, say, in a university or people who study this art. And it is an art. It's a science. It is a way of putting words together and actually structuring the language in one's mind that I look at and find remarkable and struggle myself to even begin to do. Anyhow, with that uh, exercise in verbal futility given out, uh, let us now steer to somebody who is also, I mean, to, is able to look at things and has a very, Eddie has a very organized mind, especially to me for somebody who is along with me on the spectrum. Uh, Dave in Kentucky, who covers an array of topics. I believe he came to the Overnight Scape Underground through the Jimbo and Vic and Sade thing, an old radio in a certain way, and he has gone on to share with us some really remarkable stuff, as I've mentioned, his sermon series and his uh, Ubermensch series. And because of these things, I'm really interested, and I hope you are too, to hear what Dave is contributing to us this time around. So without uh, any more driveline from PQ, uh, let us have Dave. So I guess we're supposed to get kind of philosophical in this uh, episode. And when I think about philosophy, I think, I think about those freshman philosophy courses and the kinds of uh, um, so-called moral dilemmas that they'll bring up. Uh, specifically, you know, the, the lifeboat type uh, situations, you know, where the ship is sinking and there's uh, only so many seats on the lifeboat. You can't save everybody. And there's people, you know, with their heads bobbing all around the, the lifeboat and you need to make a decision who you're going to help get in the lifeboat and who you're going to hit over the head with an oar. <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll set up all kinds of different scenarios, like, like your girlfriend is somebody you could save or your grandmother or, or there's a um, Nobel laureate in, in medicine who's working on a cure for cancer. And there's the uh, ship's navigator who's a real asshole, but he's the only one that knows how to get from point A to point B. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, not all of that is a real moral choice, you know, but uh, certainly some of it is. But I want to throw another possibility in that might be saved or might be allowed to drown, and that is the ship's cat. Now, every ship has a cat, as far as I know, unless things have changed. Um, you know, the, the ship's cat keeps the ship relatively free of vermin, you know, mice, rats, 
whatever. Snakes, in, in the case of the, a shipment of mute fate, uh, you might remember that uh, episode of, what, suspense, escape, probably both. I don't know. Probably done several times. But, uh, and you may think that's a stupid thing to bring up. Why would you save the ship's cat? I mean, you're not going to be in the lifeboat long enough to um, develop a, uh, a rat problem, unless they jump off with you, jump in with you, like in Three Skeleton Key. Uh, I, why am I all of a sudden bringing in these classic old-time radio episodes? I guess because they just pop into my head because of the situations that I'm bringing up. But I'm not. I'm not saying you know that it's a it's a pra- as a practical matter you might want to save the cat. I'm saying as a moral matter. Now most people today would say, well, any human takes priority over any cat. But this was not always so. The ancient Egyptians certainly didn't think so. It was a capital offense to kill a cat in ancient Egypt uh, around what um, four or five hundred BC BCE as they say now so I guess they're saying instead of before Christ it's before the Christian era <laughs> I think they 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 try to say before the common era but that really doesn't make any sense because you're um, you know, you're starting at zero with, with the birth of Jesus. So what's common about that? So it's not common to all religions, certainly. Yeah, so I think BCE must stand for before the Christian era. And CE stands for the Christian era. You know, they use CE instead of AD. They just can't leave things alone. They just got to keep messing with them. But anyway, uh, uh, Herodotus, um, the Greek, what, historian, I guess, um, said that uh, the Egyptians uh, loved their, their cats so much that if a house was on fire, you know, they would... Um, save the cat before saving anything else or, or anybody else. You know, the cat was more valuable than the human. So if there was an ancient Egyptian, uh, you know, making the lifeboat decision, uh, the, there would be, the ship's cat would, would come on board uh, the lifeboat. Now, I've been through this a, you know, burning building thing before. And, you know, that that's certainly what I did was tried to get the cats out first. I mean, after I got my son out. But, uh, you know, all I had to do was tell him to get out and he was out. You can't tell the cats to do that. You know, they're, they're panicked in a situation like that. Uh, they don't know what's going on. And they've been house cats their whole lives. We had two of them when this happened. The, the garage caught fire. Um, 
and we thought it was spreading to the rest of the house. Turned out it didn't, just the rest of the house was ruined by the water from the firefighting efforts. And uh, so I rushed in and got one of the cats, uh, came and set it outside the door, ran back in for the other one, came brought it brought it out. Um, surprised I was able to find both of them as easily as I was. I guess I was just rushing hither and yon, you know, trying to trying to locate them. Well, when I took the second one out, the first one ran back in, <laughs> ran and got back back under the bed. And so, you know, I finally had to get somebody to, to hold the first one or get a carrier to put it in or something while I got the other one out. You know, but anyway, it got resolved okay. Um, Herodotus also um, said that um, when a, a cat died in a household, you know, all the all of its humans would uh, shave their eyebrows as a as a sign of mourning, and uh, you know that mourning would go on. Uh, for as long as it took till their eyebrows grew back. <laughs> now, did I mention it was the death penalty to kill a cat? They they took it seriously. That that it was a serious moral offense to kill a cat. Such a such a serious moral offense that. At one point, Egypt was conquered because the attackers got the bright idea to be cat herders, herd, herd up a bunch of cats in front of them as they were advancing to attack. And the Egyptians were so terrified that, you know, if they fired their, uh, fired back at the, um, at the invaders that they might hit the cats, you know, and it would be, it would be terrible. And it would be terrible. <sighs> What's wrong with you people? Some of you all are snickering because, it, uh, you know, you think it, it's not a, a, it would not be a serious moral offense to kill a cat. But you're wrong. <clears throat> So they ended up surrendering. They gave up. <laughs> Egypt was lost because they were afraid they might kill a cat. So I don't guess the ship's cat would take up a whole lot of room in the lifeboat, so it might not really affect the number of people that you could you could load on the lifeboat. But if it did, the ancient Egyptians would take the cat rather than the human, save the cat rather than save the human. So it would be interesting if, uh, if, an, if an ancient Egyptian enrolled in one of those freshman philosophy courses. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Man, why did they feel this way about cats? I'm thinking that when the uh, 
Egyptian pantheon first showed up in their ships, they had brought cats with them to keep their ships free of vermin. They're not sailing ships in this case, but uh, spaceships. And if you notice, if you look at a cat, a cat looks pretty alien. And I know you know what I'm talking about. And if you know what I'm talking about, and I know what I'm talking about, then that means we must know what aliens look like. Am I wrong? So at some point, we must have seen aliens. We must have um, a racial memory of the alien races, some of them at least. Now, this Egyptian pantheon is pretty diverse, and it seems to be made up uh, of a lot of uh, chimeras, if you know what I mean, because there's you know, they've, 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 like the Bastet is, is a, like a human figure with a cat's head. And there's, there's a bunch of them with different kinds of heads. I don't know if that's just fancy, a flight of fancy, or if they had really been, uh, messing around with, uh, with, um, genetic experimentation just to see what they could do. You know, there seems like there ought to be some sort of moral restriction on the types of uh, of um, experimentation that you could do with uh, human, or in this case, uh, alien uh, individuals. <clears throat> but why should we assume that the all the alien races conform to our uh, human morality. Obviously, they don't. So anyway, the aliens bringing the cats along on their ships, and then, um, you know, those being revealed to the humans uh, did two things. It gave the humans the idea to use cats in the same way and put cats on their own ships, sailing ships in this case, uh, rather than spaceships because they didn't have the technology to build spaceships yet. <laughs> Barely do now. Plus it gave them the idea that the, that the um, cats were some sort of minor gods, you know, familiars, if you will of the main alien race, you know, like, like, uh, like the black cat, uh, that rides around on the witch's shoulder, you know, but, you know, they're not performing magic. It's just that, as Arthur C. Clarke said, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So it seemed like magic to them. And the, these cats seemed like they're familiars. They seemed like minor gods. They seemed like a lesser alien race. And they were that. They were that. You know. They're pretty darn smart compared to most uh, earth animals. 
one reason that I think cats are superior to dogs is that dogs are too stupid to use the cat box. Cats know to do that for no apparent reason. You want to say it's instinct? I don't know. Obviously, they're, they're not totally rational, or they wouldn't, you know, run back into the house on fire if, <laughs> when, they, uh, uh, when they get set outside. But, you know, just they know what to do without you having to train them. And they stay pretty calm, and they're pretty self-sufficient. You know, if you uh, want to set up some criteria for intelligence, being self-sufficient is, 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 is a pretty good uh, indicator of intelligence. You know, it's like uh, those reality shows, you know, where the um, last survivor standing or whatever. <laughs> Whoever's smart enough to uh, to outwit nature, you know, I don't watch that stuff. But anyway, I, I got the I got the general idea of what they're about. Now, y'all may not have heard from me very much on on the on the central lately, but that's not my fault. I have been submitting stuff; it just hasn't been going through. And the reason it hasn't been going through is Google's fault. Google, you know, owns Gmail. PQ uses Gmail. I use ProtonMail. Gmail thinks anything from ProtonMail is spam. Well, no, I take that back. They don't think that. They act like they think that. What they really think is that Proton Mail believes that people's email should be private, and that's opposite of what Google believes. Google believes that they should be able to use your email and it not be private, and they use it for marketing or 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 they can sell it or whatever. I swear, if there were Google executives on that ship that that's sinking, and uh, and they're trying to get in the lifeboat, I'm gonna grab an oar and beat the tops of their heads in. So anyway, Frank emailed PQ about it at some point, but I don't think he even got that email. I don't know why, because that Frank doesn't use Proton Mail. Um, but, you know, he explained the situation. He, he researched it and found out that's, that's why that, that my, uh, emails probably weren't getting to PQ is because of my using Proton Mail. <coughs> <coughs> well, this time I'm going back to my old Outlook, uh, email and using that. I mean, I hate to. I hate to give in, but I hate not to be on the central either. I had I had submitted what I thought was a nice little um, piece, 
for the show of shows uh, called Paradox Hotel. Maybe I'll try to send that to PQ using Outlook as well. I don't know. It's kind of a late date to do anything with it, but it's pretty short, so it could probably be inserted just about anywhere. Well, I thought I was going somewhere with this, but I couldn't think of where that was at the time. So I ended that recording, and now it's later, and I have thought about where I, where I was going with that whole line of thought. And I hope I can uh, hold it in my mind long enough to get it out this time. I'm sure you know that the Egyptians made human mummies. You know, when a person died, they, they preserved their body, you know, very carefully. Preserved their bodies very carefully. But did you know that they did the same thing to cats? They made cat mummies. Now, why did they make cat mummies? Well, I think it's for the same reason that they made human mummies. It's because the body was needed in their belief system um, for the afterlife. You couldn't have an afterlife if you didn't have a body. Um, so they would preserve the cat's bodies so that they could um, be born again in the afterlife. You know, and I, I use this this term, this phrase, you know, uh, uh, Jesus said you must be born again. And that, that confused his disciples. Um, and uh, one of them said, uh, uh, what, uh, can we go back into our mother's womb and be, be born a second time or something like that? Uh, you know, no. No, it's not. You, you wouldn't go back into the same womb. I, but, you know, most people today think that was some sort of spiritual thing. But it could have been physical. Could have been physical. You know, we mark our graves, you know, with crosses. You know, especially like on uh, in, in battlefield type cemeteries and so on. Uh, I've, I've used the picture several times. He's showing a bunch of, bunch of crosses and a bunch of stars of David, uh, you know, and I'm sure there are other symbols like that. Um, when, and your, your, your favorite group of aliens can recognize where your DNA is and dig it up and resurrect you on Judgment Day or whatever whatever you want to call it, Resurrection Day. So, and the Egyptians had kind of the same idea. They felt like you needed that body and you needed to travel on a boat, uh, <laughs> now, a ship, whatever, a bark, you know. Now, we don't know whether this is considered to be a sailing-type ship or a space-type ship. But, you know, to... uh uh, the, the important Egyptians made sure to have these gigantic monuments that were even visible 
from uh, from outer space or from from orbit anyway, um, so that their favorite alien group would be able to find their DNA and resurrect them. Now, this is apparently an alien belief, whether that is a religious belief or a um, philosophical belief. I'm not sure. You know, it has to do with uh, uh, with mind-body identity theory. You know, what uh, what constitutes the self? You know, if if they take your DNA and create and create in effect a clone of you, is that you? Or is that just a clone? Is that just a um, a copy of you? It might be it might be a very good copy. You know, it, it's kind of similar to the uh, use of the Star Trek transporter. Um, you know, where the they in effect disintegrate you uh, at the <laughs> at the transmission point. You know, scatter your atoms into outer space. And and then they take totally different atoms at some at some uh, destination point. Uh, I mean, different in identity, but uh, not different in kind. And they reassemble those, integrate you. Uh, first they disintegrate you, and then they integrate you at the other end. And it may be a perfect copy of you, and it may have all of your memories, and it may have. Um, all of your attributes. It may have all of your likes and dislikes. It may have all your clever thoughts and so on. But you've still been disintegrated. You know, that self is gone. There's a new self, uh, and it's exactly like the old self. <laughs> meet, meet the new self just like the old self. Uh, you know that is that that is that is a source of uh, of of philosophical contention there, whether that's the same person or not. I don't see how it can be, but different people have different ideas, different strokes for different folks. And apparently the aliens believe, you know, that uh, this clone is actually the person himself or the cat itself in this case. If we're talking the resurrection of cat mummies or, or of cats from the DNA extracted from cat mummies. They didn't want these cats to stray out of Egypt. They, 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 exporting any cats from Egypt was strictly prohibited. They even had a, a separate branch of government just for that purpose to deal with the uh, um, illegal exportation of cats, you know, and when they discovered that cats had been exported, they would send agents to uh, find them and bring them back, 
Now, why? Why was that such a big deal? Well, because these other countries where the cats could be or exported to weren't going to treat these cats in the same way. And especially, they weren't going to mummify them when they died so that they could be resurrected in the future, you know, and go into the afterlife. It, it's, it's so obvious that they believe these cats to be superior to humans because they were one of the alien races that came down and became their gods. You may think I'm crazy. I may be crazy, but it still makes sense. You know, you may think this is just shtick, or you may think that I really believe it. Which one is it? Is it shtick or is it my beliefs? Well, why can't it be both? You know, just because something is shtick doesn't mean that it can't be true. You know, the best comedy is based in, in, in truth and reality. So, if you can chuckle about this, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't take it seriously. Just think about some of these things sometimes. I guess that's about all for me. I'm going to get out of here and give it back to you, PQ. Oh, yeah. That, that's just, it is. It's both shtick and I am certain you are seriously considering this idea about the Egyptians and cats, which I got to breathe on that. I mean, I understand that, but to think, I mean, cats, when I was younger, I was much more into cats and I don't know what happened. Cats disappointed me. I wasn't able to understand and coexist properly with cats. And now, I mean, my place, I don't think a cat would be happy being kept inside in such a small place. Uh, and the, the whole idea of the litter box, all other things and communing with an animal aside, which is tricky. They don't speak English. They don't, they have a will of their own. And maybe it has to do with my aforementioned, um, autism that I am get attached and want the cat to understand me, and when it doesn't, it becomes so frustrated. Frustrating. Uh, it's these are all tricky things to consider with cats. But that cats come from aliens. I think when I was younger, I would have resonated with that better. I've just seen. Well, I guess there are stupid humans and stupid cats, and there are that there have been cats in my life that I really had this connection with and like the Ming my cat from like when I was eight years old until I moved out of the house and that cat it just was so attached to me it slept on my bed every night 
if somebody tried to touch me in my sleep, it would like scratch them and protect me. And I was very laissez-faire about the cat. Yeah, I'd pet it and spend time with it. And yes, I was this lonely teenager, so I probably talked to it. And when I was a kid, I played with it and made it do things. Uh, you know, here, you have to go over here and uh, like a stuffed animal instead of an actual sentient being. And somehow, he, he, that cat lived to, into its 20s and my brother wound up with it. And in its last days, I would go visit my brother and this cat that could barely walk would drag itself out and recognize my voice and my presence and want me to come. And it was almost terrifying, like this shambling shell of something you once knew and cared for. And I don't know, maybe that had something to do with my... But I really don't understand... If you disintegrate a cat and put it back together, is it the same cat? It is and it isn't at the same time. No... Well, I don't know. If you disintegrate something and then reintegrate it, I mean, cloning, obviously, if you clone something, it doesn't also take on your memories. It just takes on whatever genetic predispositions. It's like twins. Two twins have, they supposedly at least, have the exact same genetic makeup. But we all have known identical twins who are very different as people and just so that, you know, cloning somebody, there's just no way. Reproducing somebody cell by cell is different than cloning. And that gets tricky. Just like uh, uh, we were, uh, me and my friends were looking at the philosophical gym. And one of the uh, exercises in philosophy and looking at a situation involved... a future time where they had made a robot made out of synthetic materials, but actually synthesizing what a human was, and could this robot understand or not, was the dialogue and the presentation. And you could go either way, and it really, because you don't have this and the science has not been developed, could we develop a science where we could create a machine that really understands and thinks? And how much do we really understand and think? And how much of this are auto-responses that we pick up as we go along in our developmental years from a baby to somebody who can talk and communicate in language? How much of this is just uh, a sort of induced we're understand we're sub, well we understand the things people expect us to react with and not react with and empathy and all these is empathy a natural tendency or do you learn it or is it a little of I think it's a little bit of both um, it all of these are really tricky and indeed philosophical concepts and conversations that can be had and go back and forth and because of the nature of how our brain works and how we interact no one can be said 
and you can be totally convinced you are right and the other idea is wrong. Of course, a machine eventually can be developed to understand and respond as well as a biological machine like a human. But the other side can also feel that way. It's like the existence of God or something along the lines of that. These are very rich topics that properly presented. I mean, a, a lot of uh, early philosophical writings like Plato, there were dialogues and they weren't necessarily real conversations, but imagined back and forths in the form of maybe you would call it a debate. Nowadays, debates become so heated and uh, rhetoric-y and like that somebody is trying to win. We have turned debate in our schools. It's not just each side presenting. It's a contest. That's it. We have managed somehow in certain realms of thinking and education to make things into a competition and a contest. And I think that's where I personally get lost. Like I'm not just trying to present my ideas, but I have to win. And in order to win when somebody disagrees me with me, I have to annihilate what they are saying, reject it, um, make it smaller than what I am thinking and saying. Yeah, this is where at least I run into problems for sure. And I'm sure other people do as well. Um, and the Google thing, let's discuss that because this is important to anybody. Uh, people may have tried to send stuff for the Overnightscape Central. And I, I want to make this as easy as possible. And the idea that Dave has taken the time, I, I, I appreciate anybody taking the time to present something for the composition of this weekly program and that somebody puts in the effort and emails me and does all this and it doesn't show up in my email. This is a problem. And yes, if uh, the Google uh, algorithm creators were drowning, yeah, I'd grab the cat and let them drown in a certain way. I don't know. That's just so wrong and and this whole thing with clones now has my brain going but uh speaking of brains and going uh i think it's time to try to do an audio mind meld with the uh founder and the president our leader frank edward nora uh has something here on get philosophical so before I just drivel off into who knows what, and again, apologies, Dave. I appreciate, indeed, your contributions. And I, I did, by the way, get that email from Frank and replied to him and told him I got, maybe he didn't get mine back. Google Mail has been really weird. I go there, I hit refresh, and two hours later I hit refresh and there's mail from three hours ago. Uh, it's like, what are they, like filtering it and checking it out and making it wait? Email's supposed to be like, you send it and there it is, bing, bang, boom. That's the whole idea of it. It's not a postcard or a letter. It's very frustrating, especially 
in the light of this that the way things ought to be ah yes anyways uh with that let us sit together here and uh hear frank edward nora so for me personally uh i feel like there's really only uh a few things we can know for sure, or I can know for sure. Um, the rest of it is kind of hard to pin down, right? So, like, I know that I am conscious, that I am experiencing uh, this life in this world as Frank Nora. I know I'm experiencing this. So my consciousness and that sense of awareness uh, is something that is uh, the central the central observation that I, uh, I personally can uh, know is true, that I am experiencing something, right? Um, that is sort of the only thing that we can sort of know for sure, or that I can know for sure, because, of course, I know I'm experiencing this, and there's strong implication that other, peer, other people, while separate from me are having a similar experience though i cannot know that i can't know that any people are also self-aware or they just uh, are they just seem to be but actually are not i don't know that's called solipsism right but that is something i just can't i can't know there really is no way to test for that um, in most cases though you can just sort of assume that they are but we can't know. So the idea is my observation of this narrative, the life of Frank Edward Nora, is to me indisputable that I'm experiencing this. And how could this even be possible? So that is the central mystery, consciousness, my consciousness, my observation of this situation. The other thing I can know is the apparent specifics of what I'm observing. In this case, uh, a large world um, with very specific aspects. It has uh, gravity, so there's like everything is being pulled towards one in one direction. Um, there's where it's a three-dimensional reality. Uh, the idea is that uh, we are inhabit um, these uh, bodies, these animated bodies. Uh, we are human beings, and we're born, and we live, and we die. And there's also plants and animals and all the things we've built on this world and nature and dirt and mountains and trees and the sky and all sorts of things like that. And we're currently living in the early 21st century. I am here in New Jersey in the United States of America in 2023. And our lives are very complicated. We have this, uh, you know, I grew up in the 20th century, the later part of the 20th century. Now here in the 21st, um, it's, it's a very interesting mix of old and new a very rich culture of arts and entertainment, politics, philosophies, sports, games, etc. But of course, the specifics of what I'm observing are observable to me. So I know that I am 
have consciousness. I'm, ob- I'm an observer at some level. And there's this specific thing that I'm observing. But the specifics of what I'm observing, there's, there's a question of what is real, right? Is this, is this real or is it not real? And the question is, it's, it's clearly a real experience, right? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm having this experience, right? In the moment, of course, there's always this sense that maybe two seconds ago, I was experiencing something completely different. But in this moment, right, can we trust our memories of the past and our sense of the passage of time? When I think about yesterday, did that really happen or was it totally different? You know, there's a movie called Dark City that kind of deals with that topic, that these people living in this weird asteroid or something that every night their entire reality is reshaped and they become different people. They have new memories implanted and live through a day that is different than the day before. (laughs) But I would say that that doesn't really matter because... um, Right, it's an apparent experience, but we can't really know how it's being generated, right? And then if it is specifically if we really are uh, hooked up to a machine like in the movie The Matrix. Kitties, what are you doing? Kitties are going cuckoo. Uh and this is all <coughs> a computer generated reality, then it's not real, but it's a real experience, right? The question is, if you're having an actual experience, does it matter how it's generated? Is it is the experience more important? Right? Or maybe the experience or the specifics are the thing and the generation method is sort of created after the fact. That is, if the goal is to have a certain experience, it could be generated in a variety of ways. But perhaps it doesn't matter. This this actually relates to a topic we got onto on the, on the recent exit ramp um, <clears throat> about one particular dialectic, which is uh, you know the flat Earth versus the round Earth. Right? We have sort of uh, in in these modern times been told by the authorities that they have determined that uh, our planet Earth is this very large ball of rock sort of floating in a cosmic void orbiting this star we have a moon orbiting us and there's other planets and comets and galaxies and all that you you know exactly what i'm talking about this is this whole thing that we've been um told i mean i don't know that any of us personally are able to on our own terms verify this but we trust in the authorities have authorities really, of any sort, really uh, proven themselves to be trustworthy? I don't know. Anyway, on the other side of that debate is uh, that Earth is flat, right? It's a flat disk with a dome over it, right? People generally think this idea is ridiculous, but there's some people that strongly believe it. So... What I was getting at when we were talking about this is that a lot of these dialectics, which is just X versus Y, is a dialectic, right? Two competing um, 
to competing ideas, right? The uh, that um, usually dialectics are used to uh, can be used to sort of, in theory, to to influence the public. That is, people love to witness a fight of any sort, be it physical fight, an ideological fight, a philosophical fight. When they see two people fighting and you're on the sidelines, uh, as a human, you're just naturally going to get involved in it. It's going to be exciting and interesting to you. So the idea of a, like, this is a dialectic that, uh, <clears throat> talking about the shape of the world we're living on, right? And, uh, you know, as a side note, I would say that, right, trust in authorities on the one hand versus uh, a skepticism towards authorities, I think that questioning what the authorities are saying, that is, the earth is a ball floating in space and there's stars are distant suns, essentially, Right, I, I think that it's natural for some people and admirable to ask questions, is that necessarily true? There seem to be some things about that that don't make sense. So asking the question is, is I think, a good thing. But then this flat earth stuff is, an, is, a, uh, is way too convenient of an answer and way too simple of an answer, I think. And that so I... I myself do ask the question, but <clears throat> I think a lot of people that ask that question, is that really the shape of the world we're living on, a ball floating through through this cosmic void? When they inevitably run into flat earth, many of them um, stop there and they're like, oh, this is the answer, the flat earth. And I don't think it's a good answer, and I don't accept that answer. I still have the question. I still question the uh, the official narrative, but I don't uh, embrace this um, somewhat unworthy uh, alternate explanation. I think it may be something else. But then, when you have these dialectics to control people's or to influence the way people view the world, it's a fight between two things, but then the, the two things usually agree on something. That's kind of hidden. In this case, in this debate, it's actually both positions agree that the Earth has a shape. It is either round or it's flat, right? But what I was arguing was that perhaps there is no shape, right? That we're having an experience, and as far as we know, there's a surface of the Earth that has features, but... If it is, if this just is sort of the equivalent of like a movie set that we're living on, right? It, you know, it may just have enough details to allow us to have this experience, but there may not be any larger shape. It may not be flat or spheroid or anything, right? There may be no shape in that way. And 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 the dialectic of flat versus round Earth kind of. Um, reinforces this sense that no it is a real world you're living in it does have a larger structure but we can't know that so how do we approach these questions um the big thing is what is generating the experience is something so the idea is that in terms of what we can know right this experience what is generating the experience 
the existence of consciousness uh, is extremely mysterious because I am observing this and yet at this level, at this moment, I don't know what is beyond this world or what is, let's just say specifically, what is generating this experience. So in terms of what we know, that there's an observer, I am the observer, or I'm a observer, I'm an observer, <laughs> uh, and there's an experience that's being observed, is there any way is there is there any way to figure out like where is the experience coming from and uh i know that a lot of people would say well it's the natural world it's the world that just exists so this i think is another essential question which is that like there's you and then there's like this world that just exists. Somehow it exists. And that implies the two are somewhat disconnected, right? Whereas your physical body may be a part of the world. The obs observation does not seem that it's something that could be part of a physical world. As we understand, and I know this is a bit of a weaker argument, but the idea that well, let's get, let's get into this. This is important. How could observation be happening? As, as Especially the dominant worldview is what we think of as a scientist, a scientific, a materialistic, uh, in, the, in the sense that it's the worldview that is predominant now is based on what we can get our hands on to observe. So we are in this material world, so we can measure distances, measure intensities of light, measure uh, frequencies, we can measure weights of things, right? So we can just get at the physical world, and what we know as science is something that does this. It measures uh, all sorts, it takes all sorts of measurements, observations, deals with all sorts of materials and is able to uh, peer up into the sky with uh, telescopes of various sorts and uh, and and detect what's up there so we don't know that that's all that is in existence but it's all we can get our hands on right so our predominant worldview is sort of our best guess based on um what we're able to see. So it's this predominantly uh, materialist, material-based worldview, which is that um, somehow there was this big bang and all matter and energy exploded out at one moment and our world is imbued with mathematical and natural laws, physics, you know, gravity, magnetism, all those things. And that there was this huge explosion uh, of matter and energy and that over time, because of the specific laws of gravity and the strong and weak nuclear forces and right all these other forces, the, uh, the material and the energy 
eventually coalesced into stars and planets, and some planets um, had the right conditions for life to develop, etc., etc. And then evolution is how life uh, gets going. And I do think that idea, um, right, it it makes some kind of sense, but uh, the uh, the spe- so the specific uh, instance of this big explosion, <laughs> where did that come from? And then the awfully specific uh, math, uh, laws of mathematics, which where does math come from? Right, it's clearly imbued in our reality, and mathematics are so fascinating. And all you have to do is look at the Mandelbrot set to see there's this incredibly deeper structure in our mathematics. Um, where does that all come from, right? So when you get deeper into into this uh, matter, especially when it comes to what a lot of uh, uh, um, people have mentioned is that, right, as we understand the way life develops, they're talking about an evolution starting off with very primitive uh, chemicals that can sort of uh, at some point develop a characteristic of, 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 of self-reproduction, right? And then eventually leading to life, the primitive life forms, that those mathematical and physical laws, such as what is the bond between atoms, what is the, what is the rate of acceleration, all these different things, if any one of those factors was slightly different, life as we know it couldn't have developed. It was only these specific set of laws that seemed to allow it. So then the theory comes that because it does seem, even considering the scope and scale of this universe we're living in, billions and billions of stars and planets, that the unlikeliness of life developing is so great that the fact that it developed is seems very suspicious under this theory. So some people, some scientists and some people have, have suggested that Perhaps at the moment of that Big Bang, mass numbers or perhaps even infinite amounts of alternate time, alternate realities were created, each with slightly different laws of physics and mathematics, right? And the number of these alternate realities that were created were innumerable. And so that there is one argument that I find, you know, disingenuous. They, they said you know, the chance of life developing on Earth is one in a million. So what are the chances that life would have developed here? Well, no, if there's a million planets, this is that one in a million planet, right? So the idea is that if there's these myriad alternate realities, each with a slightly different variant of physical laws, and it's one in a quadrillion of these alternate universes that could possibly develop life, well, we're in that one in a quadrillion universe because life developed here. But once we get to that thing where there's like a huge explosion and it spews out energy and matter, but also there's an infinite number of variations of this coexisting as alternate realities, and each one has slightly different mathematical laws. At this point, it gets like, and this all happened. Why? It just, it just happened. That doesn't sound like something that just happens, quote unquote. It sounds like there's some some uh, thought behind it, and because we know that there are, there is an observing consciousness, 
I think this is what I'm trying to get at. When we look at a, a universe as they've defined it, even if there's multiple alternate universes and then there's matter and energy and it coalesces and it develops over time, right? Where in there would you have an observer, right? Where where in there? I I, I understand life develops and advanced life forms have brains that are like biological computers and they are able to react to stimuli to survive. Great. It's it's uh, similar to a clockwork mechanism. It 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 uh reacts based on uh, physical laws. Chemistry, electricity, etc. It reacts to stimuli, but it doesn't that reacting to stimuli does not imply any kind of observation. And so it it, it does really seem That, that that entire realm of scientific discourse, whatever, what have you, is is essentially ignoring the one thing that we know, which is that there is an op, there are observers, observation, consciousness, right? And it does seem, at some level, that I do find it an admirable pursuit to do our best in terms of what we can get our hands on and come up with theories. But that implies that what we can get our hands on is the be-all and end-all. Is, is, that's it. Whereas the truth is, there may be many other aspects of this reality that we're living in beyond what we can get our hands on. That seems rather obvious. And if, because we can't get our hands on it, because we, you know, it's, in, it's something that um, there may be aspects of our reality that we have no inkling of, but that exist. Is this is this acknowledged in this scientific realm? No, they are, they the implication is that we have we have observed our material reality, and here's the ultimate answer to everything. <laughs> that seems extremely uh, iffy, if I right if I may use that term iffy. Uh, it 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 just. Because there could be aspects that we have never even had a single thought about. But then there's other aspects of our world which are very prevalent in our culture and our history and in our personal lives, which is that what we generally call the supernatural that we can't get our hands on. It's not something we can't really easily measure in a consensual way. But I think that I know myself personally, I have had uh, so many, um, I don't know what you want to call psychic impressions and intuitions and visions and things of that nature, and many other people have as well, and there's those whole things in, in our world known as religions and right that deal with that kind of stuff, that somewhat maddeningly, you can't get at them, like, you know, like... They say there's this God, and then you can't really, like, get at God. You can't, like, measure God with uh, instruments. You can't take a tape measure and measure, how big is God? Let me take my tape measure and measure God. You just can't get at God in that same way. And yet, there's, I don't believe that the, uh, these, a lot of people, and it's weird for me because, and this is, uh, 
a wrinkle in this whole matter that my um, my life experience involves, um, for lack of a better term, psychic perceptions that I, I as as I've found talking to other people, most people don't have these. No, most people do not have any of these perceptions. So when people talk about religions, they think that people are told there's this God and that's it, and then they just, you know, they're brainwashed and strong-armed into believing it. Whereas I do feel that those the spiritual experiences, psychic experiences, etc., are absolutely play a part in these um, people joining religions and be part of religions because they're perceiving something in a spiritual or a sixth sense or whatever you want to say that somewhat verifies, you know, they feel the Holy Spirit, that somewhat verifies uh, the the uh, validity of what they're being told. Now, I've said many times that, uh, you know, whereas, you know, you if ultimately, right, our, our physical senses, our five senses in our physical bodies, we don't know if any of that's true. It could all be fake, but it's something where if I see a chair... Um, I, I could talk to someone else. Hey, what is that? They're always like, it's a chair. You know, it's a consensual reality. It may not be a chair. It may be a car, but it's disguised to look like a chair. But the idea is that like we have this uh, situation in the physical world where we, different people can be perceiving the same thing and verify it as a perception. And so it becomes, for all intents and purposes, it's a chair. Maybe it's really not a chair. Maybe it's a rock in the middle of outer space, but I see it, I feel it, I can sit on it. Maybe it's not a chair, but it seems to be a chair. When it comes to the uh, the psychic senses and stuff, it's more of a it's more of a personal thing, right? Um, I mean, I know there's cases where multiple people are perceiving something similar at the same time, but it's far less consensually verifiable, right? And and so. I, I do believe from my own experience that these uh, sensations and the information you get from them are valid, but we really have to step back and question the... We can, we can uh, specifically say, I can specifically say, that, specifically say that these are valid experiences, but the information gained thereof um, is it would be lacking... Uh, the uh, consensual verification that we have in the physical world. And so uh, specific information gained has to be taken with a grain of salt, per se. So even as I, I, I was talking to uh, last year, Q and Twyla, the sorcerers out in New Mexico, they expressed that they, and in terms of my quote-unquote ability, I would say, is is a very low level. It's there, but it's not something that I either, I don't think I naturally have a great ability in that sense, but I have some, probably more than most people. And also, I don't really care to pursue it as uh, it's something that is always there for me, but I, I don't want to, like, I don't necessarily want to try to enhance it. But anyway... Q and Twyla uh, expressed that they're, as sorcerers, that their sen- psychic senses, their magical senses, and the things that they're able to do in the magical plane of existence, 
are, are very extensive. And the thing is, I, considering my experiences, I, I strongly feel that they are telling the truth that they are experiencing something uh, in, in that realm. But as I brought up to them this very difficult question relating to this matter is that you're having the experience, but in terms of how uh, how to uh, take the information, I think they're saying that they're perceiving spirits and pyramids and this and that. Again, I don't doubt that they're experiencing it, but how can they verify it, right? So, for example, I had a very intense uh, psychic experience in college that I felt that there was some sort of psychic war going on at the college, and I perceived a lot of stuff. And some stuff even bled over into the real world. But say that there's uh, <coughs> some human beings are have psychic abilities and can not only read other people's minds, but also send psychically, as I do think psychic communication is a sort of a hallmark of this, two people can communicate psychically, transfer information psychically, though perhaps not in a way that can be easily tested. I, I always thought like, you know, if a psychic was in a room and another psychic was, you know, in another room and you wrote a six-digit number on a chalkboard and psychically send that to your psychic friend, and if they were able to do that, you could verify it, but I assume people have tried that, and it hasn't worked. But anyway, if there are human psychics that are powerful, you might imagine that they'd be able to send uh, impressions and ideas into a lesser psychic's mind and make them, and it could be anything that the more powerful psychic could think of that the a lower-level psychic would be receiving not able to understand it was being um, imposed on them by another person. The information then would be a legitimate psychic communication, but it would have no validity whatsoever. It's just essentially the equivalent of lies, right? And being that these psychic senses seem to be very less concrete than uh, our physical senses, it would seem perhaps a trivial matter for a more powerful human or non-human being that has capacities in this regard to uh, create impressions, maybe even create the equivalent of dioramas and, um, you know, uh, you know, figurines and things like that to make someone who is psychic perceive something that may actually have no validity whatsoever. And I had to admit that myself, I'm looking back on the experience of the quote-unquote psychic wars at college, I do think that it was uh, not what it seemed, you know. I think at the most simple level, maybe there was no psychic phenomenon involved, but I was a, a, a weird kid, as I am a weird, I'm still a weird kid, but a little older now, but uh, <laughs> a little, oh. Uh, that, uh, you know, people around me may have um, heard me talking about this stuff and then sort of egged me on just for fun. Oh, yeah, you know, there's these psychics on campus and there's this weird stuff going on. And I, I would have just eaten all that up. I would have really, you know, so it could have been just sort of uh, being uh, just influenced by people and all in the imagination. Or um, 
if there were, it, all it would take would be one more powerful psychic individual on the campus that, can you imagine most of the students and the, uh, you know, the, the staff would not be psychic at all. So to that psychic person, they really wouldn't be able to contact them at all. But when someone with a glimmer of psychic ability came on campus, perhaps this much more powerful psychic thought it was someone they could mess with and, you know, play around with psychically and give them all these kind of impressions that there's no, that's not true, but just sort of, uh, you know, just to sort of mess with someone, just to relieve boredom. And I think I may have been on the receiving end of that. So my impression that there was a psychic war going on, whatever, was completely just made up by this. You all would, we would take would be one person that was more more powerful psychic. And it, the whole thing would be essentially kind of meaningless, right? A kind of uh, psychic uh, bullying in a way, I suppose you could call it. Um, but in the same sense, you know, it's very hard. So when people say, you know, oh, I feel the Holy Spirit, that's why I'm going to enter this, I'm going to join this religion. Well, you're feeling something, but is it something that's, is it what it seems? You know. So that that, that does make things a little more difficult. But, as I would say, these psychic senses and what have you are all part of the world that's being generated. So the question is, what is generating this world? From the perspective of science, the world it just is. It just it, it just exists. Somehow, it just it just is. That's not a good explanation, you know. Oh, it just is. It just happened. Well, what is causing it to happen, you know? So, stepping back to the beginning, where we're like, well, we know one thing, or I know one thing, because I don't know that any other people actually exist. I'd like to think they do, but I know that I am observing this, so I am an observer. An observer that, beyond processing information and reacting to stimuli, is conscious, thinking, experiencing. Something that seems completely otherworldly. Something that is not part of the world that's being observed. The observer is like separate. Then there's, then there's the sense of the experience the observer is having. What is generating the experience? Is it ultimately the observer itself of generating the experience or is something outside of the observer, something separate? So this is the essential question, right? Talking about all the specifics of matter and energy and psychic wars and all this other stuff, that's all just the stuff being generated. That's all the, the experience being generated, right? Every bit of that could be generated in a computer. It could be in a matrix, right? It could just be the, the in the fancy of a powerful being's mind, right? All those specifics, but the observation itself, what, I, what I'm trying to get at, as, the, as an observer, as a consciousness, I am experiencing this world. How is this world being generated? Is it, am I generating it ultimately or not? This to me is the essential question, right? When we think about the nature, and this is what's so maddening about it. It is this, it is this central mystery 
of our existence is consciousness. And yet consciousness is the mechanism by which we're even pondering it. Right? There is nothing without consciousness. If there was a whole universe that there was this big bang and everything developed and there were, the, there were these self-reproducing biological entities, great, there's no one there to, to observe it. It would just be a bunch of uh, uh, circumstances that are not being observed. Without an observer, there's nothing. Could that stuff even happen? You know, the whole thing, if a tree falls in a forest, well, does it make any noise, etc.? I mean, it vibrates the air, perhaps, but it doesn't even vibrate the air. Does anything? If, if there's no observer, like, are things happening that aren't being observed? That's kind of a separate issue. But so the the main question here is, right? The, are is the observer and the experience separate, or is it part of the same thing? Can it be separate? Can it? Can it ultimately be separate, right? For example, right, could an observer, can a consciousness, let's use the word observer as interchangeable with consciousness. Um, could there be a consciousness, or could there be an observer with nothing to observe, right? That's the question. If there's nothing to, if there's absolute nothing to observe, right? Could the could there be an observer? Well, you might say, well, the observer could observe itself, right? But the itselfness of it is a generated experience, right? So th- you might say that there there is no such thing as an observer without something to observe. Even if it's observing itself, it's observing something. That then I think and this is a very difficult question, but I do think that we could say that there can't be an observer without something to observe, and therefore it can observe itself, or it can it could make up things to observe. But then additionally, there's this other thing that exists that is separate from the observer that it's observing. And as we were saying, really... Do, could something that is not observed have an independent existence? There'd be no way of knowing because there'd be no way to observe it if, if it's independent, if it's not being observed. So the, the idea is that nothing can really exist without being observed. An observer can exist without, without having something to observe. So it does kind of feel like the observer and the thing observed are the same thing, Right. And this is this is you know this is getting very very philosophical you know but I, I I do think that you know I think some of the reasoning I'm using is a bit iffy, but just as a starting point to say uh, the observer and the the experience being generated are the same thing, right? They're not. It's not a separate thing. It's the same thing, and so we get to this concept, oh, God, you know, um, the idea that God split itself up into subdivisions to experience itself, that structurally, in terms of what we do know, right, that there is only one mind, only one observer, 
that does split itself up into subdivisions. That, that's how I can exist and you, PQ, can exist. And I very much assume, PQ, that you are observing things just like I am observing things. But you know that, that ultimate vision have when they take whatever magic mushrooms or LSD or whatever the heck they take. Everyone sort of has this vision that everything is connected. We're all one. So from that perspective, because I, I have I don't do the psychedelics, you know, I, I'm not into the drug scene really. I don't know why I never got into it, but I just never did. But anyway, uh, that insight, along with what I'm talking about from a more philosophical perspective, that we know that we, you know, it doesn't seem that the observer and the observed are separate. It seems like they're the same thing. Kind of implies this same structure. Now, of course, to say that there's one mind observing itself doesn't necessarily imply that there's nothing outside of that mind. It's just that we have the local situation where there's one mind observing itself in various ways. And that kind of rubs up against our uh, the limits of our uh, capacities to reason. But I think that it's more about the experience and the stories and the narratives that we're experiencing as opposed to a larger reality. You know, so again, maybe the earth doesn't have a shape. Maybe it's not round or flat. Just enough of it exists to tell the story and have the experience, you know. So what have we concluded here? I don't know. Uh, it's all about the experience. That's what matters. Philosophically speaking. Thank you. Back to you, PQ. Wow, Frank. That's just, yep, you, you did it. You went all philosophical on us. And that was, that even bears repeat listening. There was a lot of thickness and richness there. I didn't, I have had the experience and just the way, like, say, somebody like Frank Edward Nora, you or I, we can just digress and go into these uh, monologues that we're just talking off the top of our head and going from idea and topic to idea and topic. And that in itself is the closest I come to that everything can be interconnected and some people really can follow that and be entertained by that. And other people, I'm, in my experience, uh, you're talking about one thing and it reminds you of something else. And to them, you're like leaping completely off of what we were talking about and into something that has nothing to do with anything. And really... I guess if you're making a point and somebody interrupts you and suddenly, you know, you're talking about surfing and suddenly somebody is talking about a recipe for something that you can cook on a beach and thinks, you know, that might. But then that's the push and pull of a conversation. You pull it back to the surfing and yes, you might acknowledge that that could be incorporated into a surfing experience because every surfer who's on the beach surfing all day becomes hungry and what they're going to eat might become pertinent 
at some point. And a lot of those people on the beach, they might swim. Some of them don't even get in the water. They dip their toes, you know, like myself. I'm not, you know, I can't swim and I like the ocean and the water. So yeah, I'm not going to go too far out. I'm going to get wet and then I'm going to go be on the beach and enjoy maybe the social aspect, the sun, the sights, the smell of the salt air. But yeah, and here I am digressing again into interconnectedness. But yes, I suppose there are people who take mushrooms or peyote, uh, but a lot of these things are guided, which then, you know, somebody is kind of implying the interconnectedness as opposed to somebody just taking them without any context and experiencing whatever the mind does when it opens up like that. Um, but yes, we are all observers observing. And what is real? That, that becomes a question because you express something that you've thought to someone else whatever it may be, a religious idea, there is a God, there are other planets with other people, perhaps you see a spot in the sky, and your mind, from what, for whatever reason, insists that that is a visitor, another observer who is here to accomplish something or pass through or find a cow to mutilate or uh, people to surreptitiously abduct and study and probe and then erase their memory of this and send them back. All of these things, uh, and people strongly believe that they have observed that or they have felt that. Um, I don't know. What is real? We could indeed be all figments of some large imagination and just the idea that we exist I, we exist to ourselves for sure, and anybody who acknowledges us, if you walk down the street and walk straight at somebody and they walk out of your way, you exist to them. But the question becomes, did they ever exist? Or did you imagine that there was someone in your path who got out of your way? Um, and yes, we love a fight. Uh, I don't know if that's just an American cultural or a European cultural thing. But yes, uh, if we don't feel we're going to get sucked up into it, when uh, Shambles was walking around doing his uh, Doctor Who while he was rambling around, um, he ran into some people having a conflict. And obviously in a case like that, you're just, you avoid it. You walk around the block you don't confront it and get in the middle of it or stand there and observe it. But if there are other people watching or like, why do we watch boxers or why would we watch a debate or, or let ourselves get to you're at a cafe and a few people are discussing something and you're in the middle of it and you over here and you want to add your point. Uh, we all want our validation and that's a tricky thing because the validation, and it's one thing having your thoughts and your ideas, and there are people, I'm sure, that are that sit in their homes nights 
uh, single people or even couples. Uh, they spend time together and then they're off thinking their own thoughts. And if they never share those thoughts and don't feel any need to, and they don't write anything down, that doesn't make those thoughts any less valid. It's just that person such as myself, and I guess all of us podcasters, we're doing this because we're reaching out and seeking some sort of... I mean, I would be fascinated to hear somebody talk back on the things that I say, and because that validates what I say to a certain degree, and they can invalidate it by saying, no, Berman, you're just... Uh, Brett, you're crazy. Don't do that. Don't think that. You know, that this is the way things are. And once you add the flow of time and progression of time, all of us in our lives, at certain points in our lives, something is true and irrevocable, and it's like a rock. You, you say you're going to feel this way forever. You're, this is your favorite thing in the whole world. Uh, this is your best friend. And then next week, somebody suddenly is your other best friend. All of these things, was it not true at the time when you said we're going to be best friends forever when two years later you don't even talk to one another? You, maybe there wasn't even a conflict. You just found other interests and drifted apart. Uh, what is true from one moment to another becomes very tricky because the other person to them maybe they expected that to remain and for you it didn't oh man our interaction with others and especially when you add the flow of time and other instances and what can happen in an experience you go somewhere you meet someone you're isolated and other people are there you're it's like i i really don't know how to put it besides having a consistency gets really tricky and does that invalidate the way you felt yesterday or last week or last year or something you said or you did and you thought one way and you said something to somebody and they took it in a completely different way or you were expressing something and you didn't even know what you were really saying at the time. If somebody else was listening and listened to the words you said and the way you put them. Yeah, and... The likelihood that we even exist, you know, people and this planet and that we can think and walk and like life on Earth is like this one in a million chance. It's we, number one, don't have the capacity. I mean, we're really only familiar barely with one solar system and we have only landed and what we consider life or the lack of life, or understanding. We're all limited to what we have been conditioned to think every single word and concept means. And 
that can be really dubious and questionable at any given time. And like, for the example Frank made with the Q and Twyla thing and how they travel to other worlds and they see other beings and other realms, I feel they might actually experience that or believe that firmly, and I simply cannot believe that because I can't do that. And it's not like you. St I can see somebody else swim like Frank said. They don't have evidence of it. They can spin a yarn. They, it's like Gene Shepard. He tells a whole story, and it sounds like his own personal experience. And then you realize, no, when he was a kid, it was the 1920s, and the things he is talking about didn't exist till the 1950s and it's and he could actually believe that because our minds will do that uh have you ever caught yourself thinking that uh, you know two events in your life were adjacent and connected and then you talk with somebody else from that time or you actually think about the chronology at a later time and you realize no somehow one's brain has connected two things to being that related in that way and in the same contemporary realm when they weren't. But yes, our brains as tools are so flawed. I mean, that's why I kind of wonder if a synthetic brain and a synthetic human would actually, if we had some sort of perfect memory of all of our experiences and could access it and understand how things correlate in that real chronological way. Uh, there's some universal understanding, a better way of communicating, a better way of seeing and observing. Um, and that spirit some get, like Frank said, you know, somebody is suddenly religious Yes, some experiences hit something in our center. Uh, I don't know a better way of putting it. I mean, some people call it the soul, the brain, that forebrain area that lights up when a, an idea, or like you fall in love, or you're suddenly very stimulated by an idea and you want to go out and do it, or you want to go to a place or be with a person. It, it And then everything else that meant anything and just a few, it, it suddenly is like under a blanket or is now you don't want to talk about that in such a great light. And uh, like you, I just recorded a song and it's just so great and it's so amazing to me and it's sad, but the next day, I don't even want to hear it again. I, I've played, I've recorded it, I've written it, I've played it. It meant something in that moment because I did it, and I felt like I had accomplished something. But then I, it's gone. In a few months, I could even forget that it didn't exist. And before we had the ability to record things, um. I'm sure people wrote and sitting with a guitar with friends wrote and created a song 
And within a few weeks, uh, unless something triggered the memory of that, it ceased to exist. And even when the memory of it is triggered, it's not the same song or feeling that that moment is gone and we are a different person like you can't step into the same river twice i don't know it gets very complicated and we look for reasons why like why do we exist do we need a reason uh it, that's a deep philosophical question and uh, i don't think there's an answer why we or you or you exist for this reason and this person over here exists for another reason or you tell somebody you're my reason for living and in that moment you feel that i i felt that and then you know and that's that personal doubt that oh come on you know you've been this and in the past you were married here and uh, it's and yeah the flow of time and the way we perceive or choose to perceive or our brain chooses to characterize and observe what we remember of the past or someone else relating their past and they're relating one thing and you're hearing something characterized by your own or my own past. It, it's all very complicated. Just the communication between people. Um, and again, we're, we want this validation of our observations. And if something challenges our observations, uh, have being able to deal with that in a diplomatic way, perhaps, in a way that doesn't close a conversation but expands it even more to encompass that, yes, I can experience this and feel this way, and you can hear me and say, no, what you really experienced and what you were really thinking is this. And there's no objective truth to that. We have feelings and emotions. Oh, boy. Uh no matter how much you intellectualize and philosophize, we run into these feelings that can derail everything at a given moment. It's something hurts my feelings. And I, oh boy, it's like all of a sudden, whatever pleasantness and bonhomie was happening, now my feelings are hurt or worse when I inadvertently uh, say something that hurts someone else's feelings and you look up and you see that and you, there wasn't a, I, there's no intention. Uh, at least you don't think consciously you were being malicious, but there, there's the question, were you being malicious and is this part of your nature and just because you don't recognize it or you're not acknowledging it, is it happening? Yeah, there, there is a depth there. Um, and the, if there is a conscious consciousness with nothing to observe, 
It's an awareness. So if there's nothing to be aware of there in my head, there can't be a consciousness. Does that make any sense? It would generate something to be conscious of. I mean, there's no such place as nothingness. A white room with white walls. I don't know. Would you start hallucinating or imagining some things to occupy this gray matter flow? And it depends. Does this consciousness have language? Because language in and of itself, if you took a human and could actually isolate them completely, like the isolation chambers, yes, we generate. The brain just takes over and starts producing uh, some sort of world that may or may not exist. But yeah, it's the human brain. Yeah. And, and that's, I don't know if that's philosophical or just pure drivel, but that's what I got. And uh, I got to thank, and, and again, apologies to Dave in Kentucky. Send me that show of shows thing, and it, it will be, send me anything that you've sent that seems to have gotten lost. And that's the concept of the follow-up. Just because I uh, posit a topic for next week's show, means you have to directly address that. If you've got something on your mind, and it's even not related at all, but we did a topic three weeks ago that you have something to say about, just send it in. This forum is open, and I want to present it. That's why I do this week after week. I mean, some shows I hardly say anything. So, I mean, this one... For an overnightscape central, I think I've driveled quite a bit, and I hope that that was uh, appropriate. Uh, I suppose it is. I didn't go off the topic altogether. I kind of made it about me in a lot of ways, but that I have a tendency to do that. And I don't know, sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes it's not, but let's talk about that and follow-ups. And thank Eddie. I want to hear more from Eddie. I'm enjoying your shows because they're very, I can relate in a lot of ways. And yes, in a lot of ways I can't. But I, I, the Onsug at this point in time, it's sort of a renaissance. Uh, where it, for a while, it was very quiet and it, it's things are happening. So if you're not listening to everything, at onsug.com uh, that gives some stuff a try. I mean, if you're not a Doctor Who fan, enjoy Shambles' enjoyment of Doctor Who. And the fact that he's starting at the beginning gives you an opportunity to, I mean, yes, you may have watched the ones that they show now and the new ones, but you might enjoy the old ones and not the new or vice versa. And I really, all the audiobooks and all that, I don't know that I would ever have the time to listen to these audio productions, but the idea that they exist, I would like to. It's like now that I have access to every comic book just about that comes out and has been made. Uh, yes, I want to swallow them all. If that, and books. Oh, man, if I, there are so many authors that I would love to just absorb and remember everything. That's the other thing about the brain. Um, just remembering 
more than these passing things about a book one read 10 years ago. And yeah, to have a perfect memory would be very interesting, although it might drive one insane. So uh, anyways, let's go to what we're going to do here next week, theoretically, on the Overnightscape Central and how that works. Um, The deadline for getting your show we move into september and that would be monday september 4th 2023 get it to me by evening time out here in mountain time usa uh the topic will be magazines and yes we've talked about magazines before but it's one of these topics like books like anything else the fascination with media what it has been what it is now and yes magazines as a periodical on paper is something that seems to be dying out uh, it's, it's it's such a rare thing anymore whereas they used to be just everywhere and it seemed like everybody read some magazine or other and was fascinated the articles and just the compendium of different people's thoughts and ideas I mean, this is kind of an audio magazine, the Overnightscape Central, in a certain way. But yes, magazines will be the topic next Monday. And uh, record something, write something up, and I'll read it. And the email address to send your submissions to is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And if you have almost any kind of phone, you can just use the voice memo function, talk into it, and send it. Send it to me, and uh, we will retranslate it and present it, and who knows if the other people can and will. That's the other thing. Don't be afraid to respond or comment on what I've said, what Frank said, Dave. We're all tossing out our observations and because we're doing that that implies at the very least that we're curious to know your observations on the topic and your thoughts on our thoughts and it's not exactly a conversation but it's a dialogue in time that becomes part of a permanent record I mean who knows maybe these would turn out to be like Plato's dialogues, and I know that's some sort of ridiculous uh, assertion that uh, this huge onsug would be a course of study in some future timeline, but that's the dream, the idea, and that's Frank's idea, and I resonate with that, obviously, because I participate and encourage others to participate in this time capsule of our times and the things we remember and the things we think are being forgotten especially with me and should be remembered which is a lot about what the appreciator concept is all about and 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 mark and i remembering zappa and his works because there will come a day the sooner than later where Already, I mean, there are young people who have no idea who Frank Zappa was or think he's the guy who did that song, Valley Girl. Uh, I, yeah, to to reduce 
the work of Frank Zappa to the some of the highlights that stand out in people's minds or the limited things they've been exposed to because of how media is presented on radio or yeah I guess that's where people hear music or yeah how many of your friends sit you down and you listen to a Frank Zappa album together I don't think that's a very common occurrence but yes Mark Rose and I uh, have taken upon ourselves to um, absorb that but magazines is what we're talking about here and we'll be talking about next week right here on the Overnight Scape Central and I'm really interested in what you think your experiences with magazines your ideas what your thoughts are on the history where did they come from uh, all of this and more next week right here and uh, I will leave you with that with the email address once more jot this down record something just write something up and like I say I'm more than happy to share your thoughts on your behalf if you're mic shy or you feel you don't want to say something and then edit it because hey it there I'd be the first to admit and even Frank we really try to do these things so that there isn't a need to go back and re-listen and edit and piece together uh it this is all a spontaneous thing and i hope you've enjoyed this and i hope you continue to listen and i am thankful you've given me that validation i really appreciate it and until the next time we meet set the controls for the heart of the fun <laughs>